All right, so we're in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 tonight. I will remind you, those of you who weren't here for last week when we started this, uh, it's not a reminder, it's an information. But I believe the theme verse of 1 John, one of the things you can say about John is he liked to tell you why he was writing. Theme verse is 1 John 5, 13, where he says, I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a beautiful thing about the gospel. Because one of the things you notice about man-made religion, every other religion but the gospel, in fact, this is a sign that it is man-made, is there's never assurance. There's never a sense that you're okay. No matter what happens, no matter what mistakes you make, you're going to be fine. There's never that assurance. You know why? Because if you give people assurance, you can't control them anymore. You have to hold that, that, that fear and doubt over them in order to control them. That's, that's one of the dangerous things about, about religion when it's unhitched from the gospel is it, it becomes, it's not, it's not very far from that to an outright cult. If I can stand here and say, if you make me angry enough as the pastor of this church, I will throw you out and then the gates of hell are waiting. If I can convince you of that, you'll do anything I say. And that is not a good place to be. And yet here's the gospel. And it may not be in my interest to say this, but it's true. No matter how disappointed I am with anything you do or offended at anything that you say or however much I might disagree with you someday, it has absolutely no bearing on how God feels about you. I have no power over your soul, because Jesus has died for you. And so not me nor any other human alive today can separate you from the love of God, the love of God that lasts forever. And that's very, very good news. Why is God like this? Well, because He's a Father. Any of you who've ever raised children, or if you haven't raised children, if you had a good parent, you know that a good parent doesn't ever want his or her kids to worry about whether they're loved. Now, you want them to have a healthy respect for you, maybe even a little touch of fear, but you don't want them to ever think, well, if I cross this line, mom or dad won't love me anymore. No, you never want them to have that anxiety at all. You always want them to be able to say, no matter what mistake I've made, I can run to my parents. They will accept me. They'll help me figure out the next steps and put life back together. That's the way it should be, and that is how our God is. So last week, I, I started by telling you about my friend Mary. She was actually my, my grandmother's best friend. And when I was her pastor for a couple of years, when I was 26 and 27 years old, yes, I was a senior pastor of an actual church. It was about the size of the, the group in this room, but still, senior pastor of a church. She struggled all the time with assurance, as I suspect some of you might. It's just statistically speaking, there are some Christians that just struggle with assurance. And I never could reassure her. And years later, I look back and realize why. It's because I was trying to reassure her by saying, Mary, I know you. I've known you for years. You're one of the best Christians I know. If you're not saved, nobody's saved. That did not help Mary because it was grounded in my understanding of her righteousness. And all Mary had to do in her mind, in her, in her anxious, struggling mind is say, well, he doesn't know everything about me. He sees me through the eyes of his grandma 
who's my best friend. He sees me through rose-colored glasses. He doesn't know everything that I know about me. If he knew everything that, he know, that I know about me, maybe he wouldn't feel that way. So we can never ground our assurance in our own character. Instead, it has to be grounded in something else. Remember, John is writing to people who lack assurance because they're the first or second generation of Christians and they have just seen respected members of their church, including people who have taught them Scripture, all of a sudden get up and walk out and say, we've discovered a new gospel or we've discovered some new information that, that we think is even better than what the apostles told you. And that would shake anybody's faith. So John is writing to tell them, just keep walking in the light. Don't give up on what you've been taught. So all that to say, our assurance comes from who Jesus is, not who we are. Remember that. So we pick that up with verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So I love those words, my little children. He's writing to adults, but he, it's, it's a term of endearment. He's, he has a sense of, of fatherly affection for these church members. And he says, I'm writing these things so you may not sin. Why does he say that? Remember last week we talked about how the promise he made was, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There is no sin he won't forgive you for if you're his. And John wants us to understand, I'm not saying that so that you'll just have this, feel this sense of license that therefore I can go out and do whatever I want because God is bound and determined to forgive me. Anybody who thinks that way has never really tasted grace. But instead, these things ought to encourage us to live a more righteous life. So we're going to talk about assurance, but first uh, I want you to pay attention to these three titles that he gives to Jesus in this passage because they're going to be important later on in the passage we're reading. First, he calls him our advocate, our advocate. It's actually the same Greek word that, Je that Jesus used in John chapters 14 through 16 when he was referring to the Holy Spirit. And it's the Greek word paraclete, paraclete. It means literally one who shows up to help in time of trouble. And here, most English versions translate it advocate, which is a legal term. It's a term for an attorney who shows up when you're in trouble to argue your case. Now, I remember years ago when I was pastor of another church, and I preached on this passage, and a church member came up to me, and I think he was trying to be funny. You know, because you may, you may be, not be aware of this, but there are one or two lawyer jokes out there. I don't know if you're aware. So he comes up to me and he says, uh, preacher, I'm having a real hard time reconciling the fact that Jesus is a lawyer. I just can't, I can't get my mind around that. And I said, this is one of those rare times when I had the right thing to say at the right moment. That almost never happens for me. And I said, you know what, friend? If you were accused of a capital crime and you were standing before a judge and you knew you were about to get sent to, to death row, and all of a sudden the world's best lawyer walked up and stood by your side and said, I'm taking your case, you'd be happy about that, wouldn't you? 
you would be glad that somebody was there, someone qualified was there to defend you against this when your life is at stake. And that's why Jesus is called our advocate. Now, the fact that he is our advocate, our, our defense attorney, so to speak, I've heard people say that it's, it's like God is the judge and we're the accused and Jesus is the defense attorney. And in, in a sense, that's true. The problem with that analogy, it makes it sound like God the Father doesn't want to forgive us. And Jesus does. And that's not the, the way it is. We, we talked about it last week. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's one God. They're not, they're not at odds in any way. It's not as though God is up there in heaven looking down at you when you sin, going, oh, I'm going to rub him out. And Jesus said, no, 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 remember, Dad? I, I, I died for that, that person. That's not the way it works. So to call him our advocate is a symbolic way of saying your forgiveness doesn't stop. You don't just get a blank slate the day you come to know Christ. If that's all we got, it would be a tremendous gift, wouldn't it? But let's be honest, if all we got was a blank slate on the day we got saved, we'd all mess it up. Because what would we fill that blank slate with? Sin and sin and more sin. But instead, He's our advocate. It means He walks with us. He defends us. He takes care of us. He forgives us for the rest of our days. Second title, Jesus Christ the Righteous. This is the only place in the Scriptures that, that exact series of words is used. Y'all know this. I know you know this, but i got to say it anyway. You realize that Jesus' last name isn't Christ, right? He wasn't the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Christ. <laughs> I'm so stupid. Uh, I'm glad some of y'all get my sense of humor. Christ is actually the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. So it's interesting when you read the Scriptures, if you just do that translation in your head, sometimes it'll, it'll give a new meaning. It'll help you understand better some passages of Scripture. Because again, we've said the term Christ so many times, we forget what it means. But if when you see the word Christ, you say Messiah. Because that's what it means. Jesus the Messiah, who is the righteous one. Why is the righteous in there? Because that's what qualifies him to be our advocate. In, in our legal system, you can't argue a case unless you're qualified. You have to have passed the bar. In the court of heaven, you can't rescue anybody from sin if you're, you are yourself a sinner. Because then what are you doing? You're arguing your own case. You can't, you can't rescue someone else when you yourself need rescuing. Because Jesus is righteous. Because He lived the life we should have lived. He was qualified to die the death that we deserve to die. Jesus Christ the righteous. And then number three, this is the, the one that is probably most mysterious to us. That's the word propitiation. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and bet that none of y'all have used that word all day. It's not a word we use much in English. And it's honestly a very controversial word. And I'll tell you why. Literally, the meaning of propitiation is to satisfy wrath. So Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, which means He satisfied the wrath of God against us. And there are a lot of Christians, including some I know and love, who will not accept that idea. They will not accept the idea that God had wrath against us and had to be, that had to be satisfied through the death of Jesus on the cross 
One of my friends puts it this way. He says, that means that God couldn't love me without the cross, and I don't accept that. And I say, no, it means he loves you enough that he went to the cross. And that's, that's just something he and I just disagree on. In his mind, uh, Jesus' death wins the victory over the devil, but it has nothing to do with God's wrath. He just can't wrap his mind around that. But I say, the wrath of God is a beautiful thing. That may seem like an odd thing to say, but here's what I mean. If we didn't believe in a God of wrath, then that's a God who doesn't hate evil. A God who doesn't hate evil is not a God who's going to fix this world. I I compare it to if you had a, a child in third grade. Do you want the teacher who sees only good in her students? Only good. Refuses to see any bad in her students. You might say, well, that sounds nice. Not if there's a bully. <laughs> you don't want your child in a room with, with a kid who should be in seventh grade, but he's in third because he's been held back so many times, and he just pounds every kid and steals their lunch money and mocks them and, and treats them like dirt, and the teacher just looks at him and thinks, oh, he's adorable. No, that's not what you want. You want the teacher who's going to, who's going to adhere to the rules, who's going to see their, her students as they truly are. She's going to love them. She's even going to love that, that should-be seventh grader. But she's going to love him enough to hold him accountable. And she's going to love her other students enough to stop the evil from happening. See, if God is not a God of wrath, there is no judgment. There is no judgment upon evil. If God is not a God of wrath, then heaven is nothing to look forward to. It's going to be as miserable up there as it was down here because the same evil will be there as was here. Only wrath can conquer evil. So God's wrath is beautiful because it brings an end to sin, but His love is beautiful because it refuses to let us slip away. As I've heard it said, you can refuse the Lord, but you have to do it over His dead body. He loves us enough to die for us, to save us. So, He is our propitiation. He's our righteous one, our Messiah, our advocate. So having established who Jesus is and what He's done for us, John then goes on to show us how to experience assurance. So three things he mentions. And the whole book is about this, so there's going to be other things he mentions down the line, but tonight three things he mentions that bring us assurance. The first is when we obey His commands. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now this is a great example of don't take Scripture out of context. If you just read those three verses and nothing else in the book of 1 John, you would walk away thinking, well, then if you're a real Christian, you'll never sin. If you do sin, then you're not really a Christian. But if you just read chapter 1, what did chapter 1 say? Anyone who says, I have no sin is a liar. Everybody sins, but God forgives us. So how do you reconcile those two truths? It's not that we stop sinning entirely. It's that our idea about sin changes. When we have tasted grace, when we have come to know Him, one of the signs of assurance is the way we look at sin starts to change. Starts to change. Now, My wife has this uh, philosophy about restaurants. When we got married, 
I grew up in the country. I grew up in a, a kind of a lower middle class family. Uh, she grew up in, in the city in kind of an upper middle class family, and that's putting it mildly. And so they ate out all the time. We ate out, it was a special occasion. And, and half the time that was Dairy Queen. But you know, they ate out all the time. So when I met her, I learned there are certain rules about eating out that I wasn't aware of. One is, and this has nothing to do with what I'm gonna talk about, but it might help you. If, if you really wanna know how to eat out, according to the Thacker rules, my, my wife's family, when you sit down at the table, you immediately look at the menu and decide what you wanna eat. Right then. Because if that waiter shows up and you're sitting gabbing and you say, oh, I'm not ready yet, it may be 15 more minutes before they come back. So I learned early on, when I went out with Carrie's family, I sat down, I didn't talk, I didn't ask questions, I didn't tell jokes, I decided what I wanted to eat because I didn't want to get the evil eye from her parents by not knowing what I wanted, right? Now there's another law, and this is the one I want to talk about. Never look in the kitchen. If you're eating out, never look in the kitchen. You don't want to know what's going on in there. You, you just don't. It'll ruin your night. Now, I, I tell you that to say this. Our minds about sin start to change when we come to know Christ because at that point we've looked inside sin's kitchen. We've seen what our salvation was made of. What was our salvation made of? Our sin in His blood. Our sin doesn't look good anymore after that. The temptations don't look the same. I'm not saying they're not still tempting. I'm saying in our hearts now there's a desire to walk away from all of that. There's also a conviction that we didn't have before. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Most miserable people I know are Christians who have wandered from God and who are walking on their own path. Because when you're not a Christian, you can convince yourself, I'm doing fine. But when you're a believer, when the Holy Spirit's in you and you stray from God, it's miserable. Holy Spirit won't let you be happy apart from Him. So that's part of it. Obeying His commands, this desire to do right, this conviction of sin is part of how we know we're His. And by the way, why do we obey? I want to establish this. I think all of you know this, but it's so important. We obey because, not because that's how we get saved. The, the, the salvation comes first and then the obedience. No, we, we obey because that's how relationships work. That's how relationships work. Remember, John starts by talking about Jesus as our advocate. He's our Messiah. He's our propitiation. And then he goes on to obedience. We obey because we are saved, not so that we will be saved. If you ever get the sense that, oh, if I keep sinning, God's going to reject me, that voice didn't come from God. That came from somewhere else. And by the way, one more little point on that, on that idea of it's salvation, then, then obedience. Uh, just out of curiosity, does anybody here know what Exodus 20 is? What do we find in Exodus 20? Anybody know? Ten Commandments. I knew some of you would know. Does anybody know what Exodus 19 is about? What does God say in Exodus 19 right before he goes into the Ten Commandments? I'll tell you. He says... Don't you remember, I carried you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. He's reminding that Exodus generation, don't you remember, you were slaves. I rescued you with a mighty arm, with, with ten plagues, with parting the Red Sea. I did all of that to rescue you. 
Now, this is why you should obey. The salvation comes before the commandments. The, the rescue comes before the obedience. All right, here's another source of assurance. Another way we find assurance, live like Jesus. In the middle of verse 5, it says, By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is not the same as obeying commands. Because remember, the Pharisees were really good at obeying commands, and they were opposed to Jesus. So it's not enough just to be good at following rules. But Jesus went further. Jesus loved people, even his enemies. Jesus forgave people who hurt him. I guarantee you, a Pharisee wouldn't forgive. Jesus was humble. Jesus was compassionate. Do you have a list of virtues that you see in Christ that you know aren't in you yet, that you pray about regularly, that you are striving towards? It's one of the ways to gain assurance is to dedicate yourself to live like Jesus because when we dedicate ourselves to living like Jesus, we're going to get there and we're going to make progress. And that progress gives us assurance. When I look at my life and I know I'm still a sinner, but I can see how I'm not the person I used to be. And all the inward ways I'm not what I used to be are good. I can honestly say that. Some of the outward ways I'm not what I used to be, I wish I could change, but that's water under the bridge. I have to wait for the resurrection for that. But all the inward ways I'm not who I used to be are good because Christ is in me. And that's how I know I'm saved. And then finally, if you want to be assured of your salvation, love your brothers and sisters. I don't mean your physical brothers and sisters, although they're included too. I mean your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 7 says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. That is, that is a verse that a lot of Christians need to pay attention to. Christians who think that being religious and moral is all it takes to be a disciple need to read that verse. To really walk in the light is to be filled with love for others. All right, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And, and sometimes when you listen to sermons preached in evangelical churches like ours, sad to say, it sounds like a sermon a Pharisee would preach. It's all about rules. It's all about, uh, it's all about towing the line. Are there commandments in the Scriptures? Absolutely, and they still apply. But if that's where you stop, if, if all you're doing is building moral fences and saying, okay, everybody who does this is outside and everybody who doesn't do that is inside, you're not preaching the Gospel. Think about how often in the Scriptures love is the main point. I'll just give you some examples there in your notes. Think about the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? Matthew 25, Jesus says on judgment day, God's going to separate all the people into sheep and goats. 
and the, the goats are destined for, for hellfire and the, the, the sheep are destined for glory with their father. And what's the difference between the two? Well, he looks at those sheep and he says, when I was hungry, you brought me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you brought me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came to visit me and so on and so forth. Whatever you've done for the least of my children, you did it for me. The point of that story is not that's how we get saved. Again, it's that's how we act if we are saved. We are people of compassion. That's a sign of salvation. So if you want assurance of salvation, start obeying God by being compassionate to others. Here's another one. In our last study, we looked at the Gospel of John. John 17 was Jesus' high priestly prayer. That they're just about to walk to Gethsemane, where Jesus will be arrested and then taken to the cross. What does he pray for? He prays, Father, I pray that they would be one. The man is going to die. What's on his mind? You and I loving each other. That's, that's how important this is to our God. Think about how many instances there are in the New Testament of the phrase, be of one mind. I don't know how many. I, I, didn't, I don't have a good concordance to look that up, but you might. All I know is it's in there a lot. God wants us to be of one mind. Think about Luke 15. The most famous of all the parables is the parable of the prodigal son. And yet the prodigal son isn't the main character of that parable. You know that? Main character isn't the prodigal son. It's not the father. The main character is the older brother. He's... He's the main point of the story. Jesus is telling that story to scribes and Pharisees who were upset at seeing sinners welcomed by Jesus. And so he says, there was this older brother. And when that young man came back from that distant country and everybody threw a big party and was so overjoyed to see this sinner come home, he sat outside and pouted. You've never done anything for me, Father, which of course was a lie. Jesus is trying to shame those Pharisees into saying, saying, you know, we need to join the party too. We need to be excited about seeing people come to know Christ and get into the kingdom of heaven instead of being upset that it's not our little exclusive club anymore. Again, love is the key. Jesus doesn't attack them for their adherence to the law, but he also doesn't say, because you're so good at following the law, you're fine. He says, you should love your brother. Uh, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, famously, Jesus says, if you're worshiping, which again, in, in, in Hebrew culture, in Israelite worship, it wasn't a matter of sitting and listening to a sermon. It was a matter of offering sacrifices. You're bringing your sacrifice into the temple. You've already slaughtered the bull or the goat. and You're waiting for the priest to burn it on the altar instead of staying there to watch that happen. When you realize, you know, there's somebody who has something against me. I hurt that person's feelings. Jesus says, leave your gift on the altar. Go and reconcile with your brother, and then you're fit to worship. Again, love is the key. Why do we do these things? Not so that God will accept us, but because He already has. When we do these things, when we actively love others, we start to feel assurance of salvation. When we're law-based, obviously there's no assurance. Because we all know deep down in our hearts, we can't keep the law perfectly. So I think it works like this. If you can imagine a, a, a wonderful family who adopts this kid off the streets. This kid's been on the streets his whole life. He's, he's 
He has no uh, manners. He has no idea of how to live in a family. This wonderful family brings him in, uh, cleans him up, gives, them, gives him their name, loves him unconditionally. They have saved him from a living hell at no cost. That's a beautiful picture of salvation, isn't it? Because that's what's happened to us. Now that child is saved no matter what. No matter what, he's not going back on the street because this is not the kind of family who's going to say, he's too much trouble, we're going to kick him out. He knows it. I am, I am in. I'm the luckiest kid in the world. I am in. But if he really wants to enjoy being part of that family, he needs to follow certain rules. He needs to, he needs to listen to what those parents say. When they say, brush your teeth, well, you know what? His life's going to be better if he starts brushing his teeth. When they say, get up, it's time to go to school, his life's actually going to be better if he does so. When his brother and sister, who are younger than him, have something he wants, if he chooses not to knock them down and take it, but instead to sacrifice by letting them have what they have, he's going to be happier. He's going to have a relationship with his brother and sister that is healthy, that actually blesses him. And they're going to give to him so much more than he could take from them when he is a blessing to those parents. Even though he doesn't have to be, even though he probably doesn't want to be, when he's a blessing to them, respectful, kind, receives their love and gives it back, he's going to enjoy the love of a father and mother instead of being at odds with them, instead of constantly feeling that sense of, of guilt that I have hurt someone who did something so wonderful for me. In every way, him obeying, him loving, him seeking to fit into that family is not so that he can be adopted because he's already been adopted. It's so that he can enjoy being part of that family. And that's the kind of assurance I'm talking about. To say it another way, we just naturally think of freedom as the right to do whatever we want. But that's not freedom. This idea that I will not bend my will to suit anybody else. It's all about me and what I want. That's freedom. You know what? That is the attitude that leads to ultimate loneliness. When you say, I will not bend my will to anyone else's desires, requests, I will not sacrifice for anybody else. It is all about me and what I want. That's how you end up with no friends and no family. And really, that's the definition of hell. The definition of hell is a person who says to God, I want nothing to do with you. And God says, all right then, your wish is granted. But ultimate freedom is when we say, I know where my salvation is. I'm going to... I'm going to obey the commands that were given to me by a God that loved me that much. I'm going to seek to be like a Savior who was that good. I'm going to love the brothers and sisters He's given me because they're His gift to me. And that's how I gain community, and that's how I gain family. And that's part of how we get assurance. I don't know how... That strikes you. I think most of you are already trying your best to walk that road, but if, if you're struggling in any of those areas, uh, spend some time talking to the Lord about it. Just saying, Lord, I haven't been good about being, uh, being honest 
about my obedience in this particular area of my life. Or I, I've, I've been good at following the rules, but I haven't really tried to be like you, Jesus. Or, you know, honestly, there's that person I need to forgive or that person I need to apologize to. Maybe that's why I don't feel the assurance and joy that I should. Let's pray, but as we do, here's what I want us to pray for, not just for the things I just mentioned. But I want us to pray for revival in our, our church, our city, and our nation. And you hear that word revival a lot, but let me tell you what it means. Revival does not mean that all the unbelievers start acting like believers. I think that's what a lot of people think it means. Revival means that the believers start acting like believers. It's when we get our life back. We start acting like we're born again again. Um, and we give up our pride, give up our self-righteousness, give up our spiritual mediocrity and our idolatries. And like we've been talking about on Sundays, put make Jesus preeminent again. And revival usually leads to unbelievers coming to know Christ because for the first time they see the gospel in real life. So I want you to just spend a few minutes, well, a few moments, I should say, in your own words, in your own mind. You don't have to pray out loud. Just asking the Lord for revival in your heart, in our church, in our community, in our nation, and then all closes. So let's bow. Almighty Lord, we come before you uh, desiring to be more, more obedient to you in every way. We pray for your Holy Spirit to fall upon us in a fresh way in this church, in our families, in our communities, in our nation. Convict us of the ways in which we're not obeying your commands. All the ways that we've chosen to ignore certain parts of your word because they were inconvenient for us, show those to us. Take away our pride and our vanity, our self-righteousness and arrogance. Lord, in the ways in which we're not even seeking to be like you, Jesus, because it's just too hard, convict us. Fill us with a, a godly sorrow, not guilt, because you died to take that away, but a godly sorrow that leads to repentance in us. And Lord, where there is division among the people of God in this church, between churches in our community, Lord, I pray that there would be forgiveness, that there would be reconciliation, that there would be healing, there would be honesty. Father, we desire for your Holy Spirit to bring about another revival. It's happened before. Revive your people that the world might see you might see you as you truly are. Show us what we need to do when we call upon you. 
and we thank you because we know that whatever we do, it's what you, that ma- it's what you do that matters. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.